You're listening to American Spark. I'm May Lily Lee. Glass Castle, I didn't expect it. My memoir, I didn't expect it to resonate the way it did. And I thought I'd just go back to the day job if they didn't fire me <laughs> once they found out about my sordid poor white trash background. That's Jeanette Walls, best-selling author of the runaway memoir, The Glass Castle, followed by Half Broke Horses, a true life novel, and The Silver Star. She talks with me about her books. But first, she says this about life in rural Virginia. I got a couple of horses. I moved down from New York City, and I was a little bit nervous that I wouldn't take to the rural lifestyle. And I loved it so much that I wanted to move a little further away and get a little more land. Oh, beautiful. It's, it's really beautiful. I've totally fallen in love with Virginia. Yeah. Totally gone native. Got chickens, got horses. I um, I, I love it. I, you know, I, I lived in New York City for 25 years, and I thought I would never leave it. I thought, this is the best city in the world. Why would anybody leave it? And now you couldn't pay me to go back. A dichotomy there from city life to truly rural life. So, okay. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. I consider... I consider dressing up when I wear shoes that aren't waterproof. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's just like, <laughs> That's great. My life now is very, very, you know, going to Tractor Supply. It's a very different life. And, and it's funny because I thought I was this city chick and I was playing the role, and it was a role that never quite suited me. I was thinking that just as the nonfiction writer and the fiction writer are two different people, the nonfiction well, reader. I used to think that. Okay. I used to think it was an entirely different thing. And as a former journalist, I don't make things up. Why would anybody make things up? Life is so interesting. It's not that truth is stranger than fiction. It's more nuanced. So there's so many fascinating characters out there. And so I wrote a memoir, and then I wrote The Glass Castle. I wrote a follow-up about my mother, which I called fiction because it was all from my mom, and I have no idea how much of it is true. And then I thought, well, that's that. i got nothing left to write about. And it's only recently that I've begun to understand that the sort of fiction that I'm drawn to, and the only sort of fiction I could ever write, is actually very close to nonfiction. If you think about a lot of, and I don't mean to compare myself to the greats, but if you look to them as ideals, if you look at you know Hemingway, Updike, John Steinbeck, they all wrote basically nonfiction and just changed a few details and called it fiction. So when I sat down and interviewed my mother, a lot of it I couldn't substantiate. So I called it fiction. I called it a true life novel. Norman Mailer actually called the executioner song that as well. And I just wanted to tell this really fascinating story. I, I hope it's fascinating, about a fascinating period. This woman who was born at the turn of the century, at a time when electricity was a rarity, indoor plumbing, and just all the things people went through, and this pioneer life. And then again, I thought that was that. But it was readers, again, who kept asking me questions about mental illness. Are your parents mentally ill? And I just started doing research on mental illness. And also, one of the many blessings about having told my story in The Glass Castle is that people feel kind of safe to tell me their stories. And they open up, I'm just stunned by these amazing stories that I've heard. So I've, with permission, I've been inspired, and, and some of those stories, little bits of them, have ended up in The Silver Star. And one of the things that I've just been continually impressed by are the number of people who come from families where, for whatever reason, the parents weren't present, whether they weren't present physically or emotionally or whatever, financially, and the children become little adults. And very often, the oldest child becomes the parent so that the younger siblings can have a childhood. And I find it an act of incredible heroism and sacrifice. And sometimes it works out beautifully, and that child goes on to become a CEO or a politician. And sometimes it doesn't work out so well because it's just too much pressure on that child. But I think that these are 
some of our unsung heroes in this country. You know, it's great that war heroes get silver stars, but that's one of the reasons I called it the silver stars. Is just so many people out there making these sacrifices, these everyday acts of heroism. It's complicated what what it does to these kids. I love the relationship between the two sisters. Bean is charming. Liz is a pistol, but Liz really changes in a way that's jarring. Can you expand on that, how a confident adolescent can take a trajectory so different from what you expect? Yeah, I'm fascinated by these children who sometimes grow up, these very precocious kids who, in their late teens, you know, they just sort of get overwhelmed. So many people have asked me if my parents suffer from mental illness, and, and my knee-jerk reaction is, was always no, no. But then the more I read about mental illness, researching for the Silver Star, the more I realized nobody really understands it very well. And I'm also fascinated by the whole idea of creativity. Liz is a highly, highly creative person. And just the whole concept of making things up kind of fascinates me as a former journalist who's just always clung to the truth, and the truth will set you free, and the truth is hard and fast. Anybody with siblings who's compared notes about your childhood knows that the truth can be a sort of squishy critter, and it takes on a bunch of different shapes. And so much of it is about perception. And beyond that, just the whole concept of making things up. Why do we make things up? Sometimes we make things up because we're creative. Sometimes we make things up because the world as we see it isn't quite to our liking, so we kind of tart it up a little, and we become pathological liars. Or sometimes we make things up because we can't help it. And these thoughts pop into our head that we can't make go away. And I've long wondered if there's a continuum and what the relationship between that creativity and sometimes out-of-control creativity is with what we call genius, what we call mental illness and genius. I mean, if you look at the number of great geniuses throughout history, whether it's in art or math or science, who have been posthumously diagnosed as being bipolar, it's pretty much a who's who. Many people are inspired by your story, whether it's mental health issues or alcoholism. And you mentioned resilience in interviews, and it's a theme that comes up in The Silver Star. What do you think helped make you so resilient? I think optimism. Optimism is a huge gift. Some people, <laughs> one reader told me, she said, after reading your book, I realized that extreme optimism is a form of denial, and that's kind of true. I believe one of the many gifts that my parents gave us is a love of education. And I think a love of education is the great equalizer. If, if you get a good education, and that goes hand-in-hand hand with a sense of self-esteem. If you get a healthy sense of yourself and a belief in yourself, a belief in your ability to do things and a good education, I think you can survive pretty much everything life has to throw at you. Ideally, of course, you get good food and decent clothing and decent housing. But those tools... Those tools will get you just about anywhere. And I I think in many ways I was lucky. It's funny. Some people think that my story was tragic and bleak, and some people think it was inspirational. But I certainly was resilient. I certainly know how to bounce back. And I think that one of the reasons that I hear so many stories is because people read my story, they say, you know, (laughs) I thought my child was was weird. Yours is even crazier. So, So many people out there are going around with these stories that they haven't come to terms with, sometimes that they're ashamed of. And I think that my story sort of gives them courage to maybe face their own, you know. Well, if she got through what she did, you know, maybe what I what I went through isn't so shameful after all. A number of people have come up to me and they said, this feels real. The Silver Star feels real to me. People have come up to me and said, 
the glass castle could have never happened. This is too weird. <laughs> you must have made this up, or you couldn't make this up. I've heard it been said that if you write a novel, people accuse you of making it up. When you write fiction, people accuse you of having based it on what really happened. What strikes me about The Glass Castle as a project is that you tried to write it for 20 years. Care to comment on this monumental writer's block? You know, I don't even know. It wasn't even writer's block. I'd write a couple of hundred pages, and then I'd throw it away because I was so upset by it. It wasn't like I didn't know what to write. I'd write, I'd write hundreds of pages at a time, and I just didn't want anybody to see it. Your um, first version when you were about 19 years old. Yes. Yes, I did. I just thought, nobody's going to get this. And people are going to treat me strangely if I, if I write this. If they know this thing about me, they'll look down at me. There were two things that prompted me to, to go ahead and just do it. And one is heading back from a fancy party and seeing Mom rooting through the garbage and asking her a couple of days later what the heck I was supposed to tell people about her and her giving me the best advice any human being has ever given me, which was to tell the truth. And it's so simple. At the same time, it seemed overwhelmingly difficult but that was the kick in the behind. Mom, mom has an incredible gift for astonishing insights. Just tell the truth, Jeanette. Now, the truth was complicated, but that's the advice. And, but my husband, my second husband also, he confessed later on that when I first told him about my childhood, he thought I must be exaggerating. And then he met my mother, and he said, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. it this is complicated, but you must tell it. You must tell this story. Yes, he's a journalist, too. You quoted someone saying, the truth is a liquid and not a solid, and it takes many shapes. And you said you shape your truths by which stories you choose to tell. But it is not easy to write one's own truth. It's so much easier to write It is not. It is not. And that's that's why I wrote the first version of The Glass Castle in six weeks when I finally did sit down to tell it. I wrote the first version in six weeks, and I spent five years rewriting it. And that five years was trying to figure out what the heck is the truth? Because, you know, I could have made my parents seem a lot worse than I did by including some stories I didn't. I could have made them seem a lot better than I did by not including some of the stories. So how do you, how do you depict these very complicated people fairly? How do you depict this very complicated life where I, I think that my childhood had beautiful and magical things about it? I think it also had some pretty horrific things about it. I don't want to feel sorry for myself, but I don't want to gloss over those horrific things either. And this is, I think, a dilemma that any nonfiction writer faces. You know, as a journalist, you know that you, you hear all sorts of stories. Which do you include? So you, you, you try to be fair, you try to be balanced, you try to be accurate. But at the same time, as an optimist, I think The Glass Castle came across as a more optimistic story than if any of my other siblings had written the book. Without any effects necessarily being different, our realities are different. I think one of my favorite scenes in The Glass Castle is when your father takes you to the zoo and (laughs) encourages you to pet the cheetah. (laughs) Now, here's where I'm going with this. It had me laughing out loud. And you have mentioned in past interviews that you were really pleased, maybe even startled, by the outpouring of response from this memoir that you had thought needed to be a shameful secret to never share with others. And you were just startled that so many people embraced it and felt compassionately toward the material. And what occurs to me when I think about that reaction is, I'm thinking it's Jeanette's humor. Well, it's interesting. Some people find the book very upsetting. And this husband and wife one time told me that the um, the husband said he could barely finish it. He found it so upset he almost threw up. And the wife said she'd laugh throughout. She just thought it was hilarious. So I think very often it depends on what you come to the story with. 
you know, some people think I was abused as a child and that I'm kind of in denial about how, how awful my life was. I I love the cheetah story. I It's a treasured memory of mine. Went to the zoo and, and my dad sort of climbed over a chain link fence and I stuck my hand in a cage and a cheetah licked my hand. I think it was sort of magical and golden. Other people think it was child endangerment. You know, it is what you choose to make of it. Tell me the story about the Christmas present that your father gave you. Now, that is my favorite memory. The cheetah is my second favorite memory. But when we were five years old, we had no money for Christmas presents. We lived in the desert, and he took us out in the night and had us look up in the sky and choose whatever star we wanted. I chose Venus. Dad had to explain to me that Venus wasn't a star. It was just a planet. I wanted it anyway. Dad said, what the heck? It's Christmas. You want a planet. You got a planet. And he gave me Venus. To this day, when I see Venus up there in the sky, I think of that moment, and I think that's mine. Dad gave that to me, and it just... It's a treasured, treasured gift. Now, your sister, however, came away with a very different take on that. This is, what's, this is what's so fascinating about life and about human beings, that it's a, it's a tragic, ugly memory for her. She tears up and says, isn't that like that sorry SOB dad of ours to give away something that doesn't belong to him in the first place? And it is so interesting to me. Lori and I were very close, and we have such different memories of the exact same event. We don't have different memories of the event, but different reactions to it. And this is one of the things that I was really trying to get at in The Silver Star. You have two sisters, very close, each other's best friends. They encounter a hardship, and they see it as an entirely different thing. They go into a new town having completely different reactions. And this is something that just so fascinates me. As a writer, as a former journalist, we we encounter these situations, and what do we go away with it? Is it, is, it a, is it abuse? Is it just a tough situation? Is it a, a, a beautiful lesson for life? And, you know, so much of it is just who we are and what we make of it. I, again, you, you could accuse me of <laughs> rose-colored glasses or whatever. It goes back to the old, you know, you have lemons make lemonade. Is that a form of denial? I don't know, but i got to tell you something. It'll get you through some tough times. And you can go around feeling sorry for yourself about what you did or didn't get, about what was or wasn't done for you. Or you can take those past events from your life and put them to work for you and realize, you know, okay, I didn't get a Christmas present, but I will always have that lovely star. Or you can focus on not getting the Christmas present, and it's entirely up to you. I think that, you know, my father was such a BSer, and he really, you know, he was such a flim-flam man in so many ways. But he also gave me an incredible gift of dreaming. Storytelling was another one of his gifts. And a belief that all of this craziness from our childhood was just temporary. And that's one of the reasons that I called the book The Glass Castle is because even though we slept in cars and slept in little shacks without heat, Dad always promises that one of these days he was going to build a great big mansion. And you can focus on the fact that he didn't fulfill that promise. That can be what you focus on and feel sorry for yourself or you can focus on the promise, the idea that I actually deserved something better than what I had at that point, that, that there was a dream and a better future for me. And I think that that's an incredible gift. You said that if you could change one thing about your childhood, it would be your father's drinking. Uh, alcoholism is insidious. It skews so many things, yeah. masks so yeah. much. Yeah, and anybody who... Uh, Anybody who's ever loved an alcoholic or any addict knows that you know you can't change somebody who doesn't want to change. But I think I've only recently begun to understand that I think that Dad was actually bipolar and trying to self-medicate. And I think that that's the case 
for so many more alcoholics than I'd ever realized. It's not as simple as, oh, why don't you stop drinking? It's, I think it goes much deeper than that. And given my father's childhood, to me the shocking thing is not that he was as damaged as he was, but that he had as much good in him as he did. You know, and that's Somebody once told me, we grow up not when we come of age to vote or drink or anything like that. It's when we come to terms with the fact that our parents were people too and that they have flaws and you love them, not just in spite of it, because of that. And you accept them as a human being, not as somebody who's supposed to be perfect. You lived a nomadic lifestyle as a child as a result of that backdrop. Now it seems with your life in Orange, you've settled in. Oh, I got I got a good life. I got <laughs> I got a big old house. I got four flush toilets. Life is good. Life is really good, and that's one of the great things about having a nomadic, chaotic childhood is you don't take anything for granted. And the fact that I can go turn on the hot water whenever I want, or if it gets too cold, I turn up the thermostat, will never cease to be a miracle for me. I am the most homebound creature. I love our house. I just, I cannot believe I have a place to live now. This is one of the blessings of of having gone without is, you know, you don't take anything for granted. Oscar Wilde once said, a necessity is a luxury once sampled. And I'm afraid there's some truth to that, that, you know, I think that all of these modern conveniences are wonderful as long as you don't think that you can't get by without them. One of the great things about having scrimped and scraped is that, I know how little you truly need to survive, and I really appreciate luxuries. Before we say goodbye to you, I just want to cover one more area. Your background as a journalist, and I want to pull from the title dish, How Gossip Became the News and the News Became Just Another Show. How has news become a show? I've been in news for a long time. I've written about celebrities, and I've just watched this sort of horrifying thing happen where celebrity journalism used to be the side dish, the sort of thing that people had for fun at the end, the dessert, if you will. Now it's become the main course, and it has taken over the news, and this is not a good thing. I'm not going to knock celebrity journalism, but this is not what we should be focused on. I believe that celebrities serve the same sort of function that Greek gods used to, and that they're sort of cultural touchstones and cautionary tales. But that being said, you know, folks, there are more important things in the world. Jeanette Walls, what a pleasure. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and it truly was quite an honor to be able to talk with you today. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed this conversation. 